Let's get into it. Let's read, um, starting verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So as we look at verse 1, Paul refers to himself as an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out as an ambassador to represent Jesus Christ, bringing the message of salvation. And in the letter to Galatians, Paul um, says he's an apostle by the will of God. But here he says he's a, an apostle by the commandment of God, which is a much stronger term. Paul wanted Timothy and the church, who was also going to hear this letter, to know that Paul's apostleship wasn't man-made, but it was by the command of God, giving weight uh, to what he's going to say about doctrine. We have to realize the uniqueness of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Um, God's word does not come to us directly today. It comes to us through them. Uh, we're not reading the opinions of Paul. Um, we have to recognize that what Paul is telling Timothy and the church has come directly from God. No one has his apostolic authority today. Um, the, the prophets and the apostles were granted special authority to speak for Jesus and the believing community. We're disciples of Jesus as we learn his word, and we're apostles of Jesus as we take his word out into the world, but we're not to add anything to scripture, nor are we to take anything away. Notice that Paul calls God our savior here. This is the first time that Paul uses this description of God. At the time, the word savior was used to honor the very evil Roman emperor Nero. People were forced to call Nero savior, and, and Paul is making the identity of the real savior clear here, that it's God in the person of Jesus Christ. God is the ultimate source and fountain of our salvation, not anyone else. And Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as our hope. The phrase, Jesus our hope, is not used very often in the Bible. But it is used in, first Colossi or in Colossians 1.27, where it says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And John 3.16 explains that hope of glory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Together, God provided the sacrifice, and Jesus lived out that sacrifice. So Jesus um, not only gives us hope, he is our hope. And this hope is a certainty, not like when we say, I hope to get a raise or I hope to go on vacation. Um, when we look ahead, he is our hope that is sure that he's coming back and he's going to perfect our salvation. In verse 2, Timothy calls, um, or Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. True means genuine, not false, not illegitimate. Paul wanted the church to know this about Timothy. He wanted to give Timothy legitimacy. 
Timothy was not like some of those who had been with um, Paul and had defected. Paul wanted to assure the church at Ephesus that Timothy, um, that they were in good hands under the leadership of Timothy. And Paul wanted the church to know that he had the utmost confidence in Timothy. Timothy had a good uh, reputation among other Christians as well. Acts 16, Luke tells us that he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul saw potential in Timothy. He discipled him, he trained him for ministry, and he poured his life into him. Next, Paul reminds Timothy of the blessings that God is lavishing on him, grace, mercy, and peace. This was more than just a pleasant greeting. Uh, Paul is reminding Timothy that he's going into the battle with three powerful resources. Grace was going to be God's ongoing forgiveness and enabling to Timothy. We know that grace is God's free gift of salvation to sinful mankind. It's receiving something that we don't deserve. But grace is also a source of power from God for living out the Christian life. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul recounts how Jesus had said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And then he would have mercy as well. God was going to give mercy to Timothy, which is his sympathy and his concern. And this was the first time that Paul used mercy in his greetings. Um, Mercy is shown from one person to another, and it involves acts of pity directed towards someone in need, someone miserable. Timothy was going to need mercy from God to be able to faithfully do this, this job and to forgive what was not right in himself. And he was also going to need um, be able to have to give out mercy as he pastored the church at Ephesus. Um, there the church, you'll, you'll remember Pastor Tony mentioning in Revelation 2-4 as having lost their first love. And Timothy would need mercy as he dealt with the false teachers. And he was going to have peace. Peace was going to be God's tranquility and stability within him. And peace was is a a supernatural contentment that's only given to those of us that are born again. Philippians 4, 7 tells tells us that this is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding and will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The beginning of verse 3, Paul says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So why is Paul needing to urge Timothy to stay in Ephesus? These are some of the challenges that Timothy's going to face. Um, He had moved away from Lystra, where he was from, about 640 miles to Ephesus. So he's moving away from the support of his family and friends. He's in a new church environment, and the church is established, but it's not without its problems. And he's been asked to lead the church, not by the church themselves, but by Paul, who's actually outside of the church at this point. So there may have been opposition to Timothy taking over. And Timothy probably did not really want to go out from under the wing of Paul, it might have been scary to step into Paul's footsteps. So, but Timothy would be overseeing the work of um, many congregations and churches, and there were probably hundreds of churches with thousands of Christians meeting all over Ephesus. Timothy was going to have to confront older men um, regarding teaching false doctrines. This time period also marks the beginning of the persecution of the church. Nero would burn Christians um, as human torches to, go, you know, to light up his garden. So Timothy's facing uh, trouble from inside the church and from outside the church. Um, but Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 where he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So Timothy may have had an issue with fear, rightfully so. Youth and fear may have made Timothy feel inadequate to do this job. 
But Paul didn't want Timothy to be fearful. He needed him, him to be bold, even though his mentor wasn't going to be there anymore. There comes a time when we need to stand on our own spiritual feet, and this was Timothy's time. The rest of uh, verse 3 and 4 uh, say to Timothy, you may charge some uh, that, they charge, that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So these false teachers were coming from within the church, and they were bringing another doctrine. And Paul had previously warned the Ephesian church about five years earlier in Acts 20. He said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day. So Paul's really concerned about false doctrine, and he wants um, the real doctrine to be um, what Timothy teaches. So what is doctrine? Doctrine is just a set of beliefs that a person holds. And we all have the freedom to believe whatever we want. We would agree with that. But what's not true is that it doesn't matter what you believe. When Jesus was on trial before the Roman governor Pilate, Jesus said, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into, wor into the world, that I um, should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate cynically responded, what is truth? He was like those who say, you can have your truth and I can have my truth. He chose not to believe the truth. And that would affect his eternal destiny as it will many others. So the truth, our Christian doctrine, is important to God and it should be important to his people. The doctrines of the gospel are the set beliefs, the principles or truths that are held and taught by Jesus and his apostles. For example, the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. Salvation by God's grace and not by works. Salvation through Jesus alone, the resurrection of Jesus, monotheism and the Holy Trinity. We're not to fall out on things that aren't essentials like uh, the tribulation timeline or your style of worship or your former church government, but we are to hold to our doctrine, the doctrine of Jesus. The false teachers at Ephesus, um, they were misreading God's word. They were misreading and misusing the law. They weren't following Christ's doctrine. They were mixing elements of Judaism, which is an adherence, a strict adherence to the Mosaic law. Um, and they were mixing that with the apostles' doctrine. They were saying, it's great to follow Jesus' teaching, but it's more important for you to keep the law and the commandments. They said this was how to reach perfection. They were telling people things like they couldn't eat certain things or they couldn't marry. And it was being taught that the law was a means of salvation and sanctification, that following the law would make you right and save you. It was putting people in bondage because there was no way that they could live up to the law to be sanctified and saved. The false teachers were using the law unlawfully, and they were dividing the church, and more importantly, they, weren't, they were in opposition to Jesus' teachings. And early Gnostic ideas were being mixed with the apostles' doctrine. Gnosticism is uh, where they claim to have um, secret mystical knowledge that only the elite have access to. And these false teachings were probably in some way denying Jesus' physical incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. And they were spreading fables, which are just myths or stories. There were some Gentiles bringing paganism into the church at the time. Um, 
with stories of like immoral gods and goddesses that represented the forces of nature. Um, Ephesus was a hotbed of these ideas. It was where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was, the temple of Artemis or Diana. And then you had endless genealogies. From early times, the rabbis would tell you stories about their genealogy, trying to find clues in the Old Testament, with everyone trying to prove that they were the closest to Abraham, and that would make them the most important in the church. And they would tell these stories in the synagogue, and they would even make their way into their, old, uh, their holy books. Now, the New Testament starts with a genealogy that leads us to Jesus, but these genealogies would never lead anyone to Christ. There's a danger of trying to find something in Scripture that no one has ever seen before. And that's what these Jews were doing. As they looked to the Old Testament genealogies and discussed stories endlessly and veered off to, into all sorts of uh, vain speculations. In doing so, they missed out on solid teaching. Now, Timothy is told to guard the gospel, not only from those that would deny the gospel, but from those that would distract from the gospel. And... Um, that's what these doctrines and fables and genealogies were doing. They aren't found in scripture, and they're born out of pride, and they lead to disputes and questions. Um, they were emphasizing the wrong things instead of focusing on Jesus and his great work. Paul says in Titus 3.9, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Verse 5 tells us that the purpose of the commandment is love. Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. The purpose of the commandment given to Paul to present the true doctrines of the Christian faith was to lead us to love God and to love each other. All of God's word will produce in us a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. A pure heart is a heart that's purified by the word and the spirit of God. From the love of sin, from the love of the world, from the love of self, and anything corrupt. It's, it's a love that's free from impure motives. And a good conscience is a conscience that's aware of sin, but covered by the blood of Jesus. It's one that's confessed sin and asked forgiveness and is free from guilt. It's a love that practices righteous Christ-like living. A sincere faith is a faith that isn't hypocritical. It doesn't wear masks, doesn't play church. You trust him on the day that you lose your job. You trust him on the day that he provides a new job. You trust him at the wedding. You trust him at the funeral because he's worthy of your trust. So how do we maintain a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith? By continually bringing our heart before the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 promises us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If reading God's word is just an intellectual pursuit for gaining knowledge as it was for these false teachers, without the love, then it's not what God intended. We are to be deeply rooted in truth and growing in God's love. You can't separate the two. Rooted in Jesus' truth and growing in Jesus' love. We want to be about God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Verses 6 and 7 say, From which some, having strayed from the commandment of love, he's talking about, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. So these false teachers had strayed from the commandment of love, from teaching true doctrine, and were not using the law lawfully. 
they were trying to use it for salvation. They were working from a place of having an impure heart, soiled consciences, and a false faith. How does this happen? It's a drift from the truth. It's a dissatisfaction with the truth. Always looking for something new. It's just seeing the Bible as a bunch of ideas to be discussed instead of God's word to be obeyed. It's loving to teach but not really wanting to learn. False teachers want to be recognized as teachers of God's word. Their desire is actually an unhealthy lust to be in the spotlight. They want the praise of men more than the praise of God. Um, they've missed out on the proper use of God's word and instead have turned to idle talk or idle chatter, which is, are words of no profit that make no sense. Um, verses 8 through 11 say, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, and then it lists the series of sins. Um, how does the law work? The law is given to sinners um, to lead them to Christ. We were on that list of sins. You know, you may not connect with some of those, but that very last line that says, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, well, we fall in there, uh, right? Um, so we were on that list before coming to Christ. Um, when we examine ourselves in the light of God's law, we come to the conclusion that we are sinners and that we deserve hell. We, we realize we're totally dependent on God's mercy and grace. We are, but we are now made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We're not on that list any longer. Um, the law is a teacher, a tutor. Galatians 3, 24, 25 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In Romans 7, Paul tells us that he would not even have known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. He realized that he was guilty of covetousness after reading the law. Um, the list of sins there in verses 9 and 10 are, are really interesting. They're similar to the Ten Commandments. Paul is saying that the Ten Commandments still speak powerfully into our lives and our world today. We need them to restrain rebels. The law restrains by threatening punishment. We have to think about consequences before we do an evil thing. We need the law because we live in a fallen world. It acts like guardrails to keep us from straying and, and keeping us on the right path. Good law acts as a deterrent. But are Christians under the law? The Bible is very clear that Christians are not under the law. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 5.4 says, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. The law cannot condemn a person in Christ. The law has no power over us. The law cannot bring righteousness to us. Only, uh, like Paul says in verse 11, the glorious gospel of the blessed God can. So does the law have a place in the life of a Christian? The Bible is equally clear that Christians cannot forget the law. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, it says in verse 8. Romans 7.12 says that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God, and at this time, the New Testament wasn't even written, so you know he's talking about the Old Testament. God's law remains. Matthew 5, 17 to 19 says that nothing of the law shall disappear. 
Jesus says, if you teach that the law is of no importance to the life of a Christian, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If you practice them, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Thankfully, God gives us the spirit to help us live the life that's described in the law. We're not doing it on our own. We ought to be like David when he said, oh, how I love your law. So how are we to use the law lawfully or properly? The law points believers not to a life of rule keeping, but to a life of love. Galatians 5.14 says that for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13.10 says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We're not quite smart enough to know what living a life of love is. When the New Testament says live a life of love, we can look to the Old Testament to explain to us what that is, just like it did Paul. Ten Commandments tell us, love, your, love and honor your mother and your father. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. If we didn't have that, we'd lie all the time because, quite frankly, it benefits us a lot of times, right? Um, when the law is used properly, Jesus takes us where the law cannot go. Jesus takes us deeper and further. In the New Testament, Jesus calls us to be generous. We can go back to the Old Testament and find that God's people gave a tenth of their income back to the Lord, right? But this is not a rule for us today. It's an invitation for us to use the law to help us pursue that generosity that Jesus wants us to have. Um, Jesus also said, you heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, don't be angry with your brother. Think about this. Jesus is going again beyond the law. He's saying, don't be angry with your brother. And if you can do that, you won't even get to the point of having to you know, worry about murder, right? There is no law that you have to lay down your life for Christ, and yet believers through the centuries have done that. There's no law that says you have to sell everything and go on the mission field, and yet believers have done that. You can't legislate or make laws about love, right? Um, the law says don't do that. Love says I don't even want to do that anymore. That's the transforming power of the gospel. Read the Old Testament forward. The law is not an end in itself. It's a sign that points forward to the gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So how do we apply this passage to our lives? Back to verse 1. This passage is a beautiful representation of a mentoring relationship. There's so much love here between Paul and Timothy. Our women's Bible study is, is a great opportunity for mentorship as wisdom is shared, and it can be a springboard for even more mentoring opportunities. Um, discipleship's important. It's more than meeting for coffee and chit-chatting, although there's nothing wrong with that, but we want to go further. We want to have a mentor who encourages us to grow in godliness, and we want to do the same um, to those that we're in their lives, right? What, what do you think um, would be most important for you to pass on to someone that, that you're involved with? right? Think about that, or um, maybe share at your table some things you've learned from your mentors, okay? Um, is there an area in your life that you want to be mentored? Maybe mention that at your table. 
Is God leading you to mentor other women in some way? Mention that to the leadership. This passage should also remind us how we need to keep our pastors and leaders in prayer. We've learned that pastoring and leading is a call of great responsibility. True shepherds of Jesus aren't in it for the fame or the money, uh, certainly not. Um, they are called by love. But it can be difficult and challenging, so we need to keep them in our prayer. We women aren't pastors, but we are part of a church, and we're all in full-time ministry, one way or another, to our families, to our friends, our coworkers, our acquaintances. So all the encouragements and warnings in this passage are for us, too. And while we don't want to be called out by our leaders for introducing anything into our church family that could be considered a distraction to the gospel, and certainly nothing that could be considered false doctrine. So how do we guard against false doctrine in our personal lives? It's easier, in a sense, to recognize false religions and cults. They're kind of blatant about their antagonism to Christianity. But it can be difficult to identify false teaching that appears to be Christian and uses Christian terms. We need to recognize that not everything out there that claims to be Christian is actually based on solid Christian doctrine. We need to be careful about the books and devotionals that we read, uh, the worship music we listen to, pay attention to the words, uh, to other pastors we listen to, Christian TV shows and conferences we attend. We're humans and we will make mistakes teaching, but if someone won't receive correction and shows a pattern of mistakes in their teaching, uh, a false teaching, they may be the false teachers that Paul's talking about. We need to know our Bibles. Uh, we need to know our core beliefs and our doctrines. Maybe we could challenge ourselves to memorize scripture that supports core doctrine. When I served in children's worship years ago, my favorite songs to do with the kids were the ones that taught scripture. We, we put uh, Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 into two songs and we would always sing them together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a precious thing to be able to put doctorate into little ones when they're young. They won't forget it. Like you remember songs that you learned when you were little, right? Uh, this will stick with them. In 2 Timothy 2.15, we're told to study, to understand and know God's word. So that before God, we will rightly speak his word. It's okay. That takes some effort, but what a blessing it will be to us as we grow in the knowledge of God's word and in his love. Maybe the idea of learning doctrine sounds a little dry and schoolish to you. Well, thankfully, we have a pastor who is committed to teaching the Bible from beginning to end. Um, we learn doctrine as we sit under his teaching, and we learn doctrine as we spend time in the word of God ourselves. I have a practical way that I use uh, to learn doctrine. I, I have a folder on my computer where I keep a list of verses that fall under a certain doctrine, and I use that list to mark my Bible. Uh, for example, uh, in the back of my Bible, I have a numbered list of our core Christian doctrines, and number seven is uh, Jesus's deity. I really like to know this doctrine well because it's under attack from false religions and cults and even a group in the church called Progressive Christianity, which isn't really Christianity at all, they all deny that Jesus was God. So I, I have uh, a, one verse written beside that in the back of my Bible, and it's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So I'll go to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. That, that verse is highlighted, and I have the word deity written out in the margin, and I have uh, a reference to the next verse there, and then I'll go to that verse 
And again, there'll be another verse at the margin, and I can go to that verse. Um, so not only is this method helpful to me personally to learn doctrine, but it's a great way to be able to share the truth with others. Um, I've often wondered why some Christians won't open the door to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. It's, you know, what an easier way to fulfill the, the Great Commission than to have them come right to your door, you know? <laughs> so um, having these verses uh, easy to access for me um, helps me to be able to stay uh, in charge of the conversation. Because if you let them start talking, they won't stop. So you start, and you just keep, as you're flipping, you just keep talking, and they never have time to convert you. <laughs> right? So as we close, here's a list of some things for us to think about in relation to what we learned from this passage. Are we guilty of being enticed by new and novel ideas in the church today? There was a book that came out about 10 years ago, and um, it, it really was... It was written by a pastor, but uh, it was based on a, a Jewish myth, actually, of a guy who drew a circle in the sand, and then he stood in it and demanded, you know, that God answer his prayer. And, it's, um, you know, that's just not in the Bible. Um, I have a friend who's currently uh, pushing a book using the labyrinth, you know, which is kind of like a maze you walk through, get to the center, and um, it's supposed to help you with your prayer life, you know, but... These things will never draw us closer to God. They will never give us special illumination. They will never give us special revelation. They're a distraction to the gospel. They're a distraction to how God has taught us to pray. Do we spend as much time in God's word as we do in reading people's blogs and books? Are we guilty of spending our time in foolish pursuits which leads to arguments and dissension? There's people who are really caught up in biblical numerology. Um, you know, they put a lot of weight in what numbers in the Bible mean. There's people who are caught up in date setting. I think I know when Jesus is coming back. Um, God does not call us to search for secret meanings, hidden messages, and codes in the Bible. That's a distraction to the gospel. How much time do we spend on social media meddling in other people's business in comparison to getting face-to-face -face with the living God in his word and in prayer? Are we applying right use of the law? for the purpose of getting caught up in wise talk and loving others, which leads to godly edification. Are we reading the word, studying it, and memorizing it, talking about it night and day to our children and to those with whom we have contact? Is our speech like the Proverbs 31 woman who speaks with wisdom and kindness? Does our speech and do our works lead to godly edification? There's more than enough truth in the words and the meanings of scripture to meet all our needs. If we spend our lifetime searching the scriptures, we still will not have mastered it, but hopefully it will have mastered us. I'm so thankful for the truth in which we can be deeply rooted. My prayer is that we would continue to grow in the knowledge of this truth and grow in his love. Let's pray.